Afternoon, brothers. It's good to be with you again. You open up to Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Most of my comments will be introductory in nature. No, wait, let's not do that this time. Let's, no. Let me, let me instead share with you something else. Let me read something to you. Research confirms common sense about effective leaders. They share crucial attributes. The first, termed surgency, contrasts dynamic agents of authority as sociable, gregarious, assertive, and leader-like against less competent ones who are quiet, reserved, mannerly, and withdrawn. Potent leaders also manifest emotional stability in their calm self-confidence. Their opposites are possessed by their emotions and show it in their anxiety, insecurity, and worrisomeness. Furthermore, people who exercise authority well are well-organized, work hard, and act responsibly. Their conscientiousness makes them the polar opposite of people who are impulsive, irresponsible, undependable, and lazy. Good leaders are not hard or tyrannical, but rather sympathetic, cooperative, good-natured, and warm. Their agreeableness contrasts with the grumpy, unpleasant, and cold traits of persons who do not lead well. Persons who sit easily in the saddle of authority are found to have a healthy sense of curiosity and to be imaginative, cultured, and broad-minded. Those who experience and give little comfort in work, on the other hand, approach their narrow interests in a concrete-minded and practical manner. The observation that a leader at ease with authority gets the most out of others is reinforced by the research conducted on commercial airline flight crews. Breakdowns in team performance are the primary cause of air transport accidents. Flight crew performance, defined in terms of the number and severity of the errors made by the crew, is significantly correlated with the personality of the captain. Crews with captains who are warm, friendly, self-confident, and able to stand up to pressure, that is, those who possess the characteristics previously listed, make the fewest errors. Conversely, crews with captains who are arrogant, hostile, boastful, egotistical, passive-aggressive, or dictatorial, make the most errors. That was Eugene Kennedy and his wife, Sarah Charles, in their book, Authority, The Most Misunderstood Idea in America. And they raise important questions about a crucial issue for us. Uh, the thing we want to consider in this time together, this afternoon, the leadership in the church. In our homes, leadership is important. In our churches, leadership is important. And in our churches, we always have crucial decisions coming up. When you left where you're from to come to this conference, Pastor, there were things on your mind. There were things you were getting away from for a few days. Things that you knew would be waiting for you when you returned. Things that even now on the Friday afternoon, as the conference begins to wane, are knocking at the door of your attention. Things you've been praying for the Lord to speak to you about from his word during our time together. That's part of what it means to be a pastor. Friends, what should leaders look like? What does God's words say about this. Well, as pastors, we love books. One of the things we love about Shepherd's Conference is the bookstore. 
Let me just tell you, the bookstore closes at 7 p.m. today. So if you're going to make purchases, it's, it has to be done before 7 p.m. Two purchases you might want to make. <laughs> Mark, is this part of your sermon? Yeah, kind of. Um, if you know David Wells' book, The Courage to be Protestant, raise your hand if you know this book. That's very few of you. David Wells, one of my theology profs I had at Gordon-Conwell 20 or 35 years ago, uh, was, um, wrote a series of books, uh, four volumes in the 1990s, which went over major aspects of the Christian faith. He put them all together in this book, The Courage to be Protestant. If you've not read this, you can get copies of this in the bookstore for $13. I would encourage you to tool up on the truth that you want to teach. The one other book I wanted to point out to you, since I have your attention right now, is for $35, you can get a brand new book that's just come out. I endorse about maybe, I don't know, three books a year, because I read every word of a manuscript before I write an endorsement. And I just, I'm not a fast reader. And this was a really fat one. But, but when they asked me to do it and told me what it was, I thought, oh, I want to read this for my own soul's sake. Friends, this is called Reformation Worship. You can get it here for $35. It's an amazing collection. I've read every word in it. It's taking Reformation liturgies. That is what the Sunday morning services were like from Germany, France, the Netherlands, all across Europe in the first decades of the Reformation. And what you see is that the gospel that we celebrate, that a lot of us remembered especially clearly last year, the 500th anniversary, that gospel became visible in their Sunday morning services, in their time together. That's how it impinged on the lives of people in churches in Europe in the 1500s. And this is a clear record of that. If you like Valley of Vision, this is like a corporate kind of Valley of Vision where you're looking at how the gospel is mediated and meditated upon in service after service after service. And if you want a book that will help you as a pastor lead your church well, I'm not telling you you have to read every word in it, but it would not be bad for you to do that. You could read it slowly. I read it slowly. I did 10 pages a day for a couple of months. It was very useful and edifying. Reformation worship just come out. They do have copies in the bookstore. Even better than books by David Wells and books by Jonathan Gibson and Mark Ernge are the books of the Bible. <laughs> One of the things I like to do in my own congregation from time to time is do a sermon on a whole book of the Bible. Because I would like my people to read books by R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Al Mohler and Steve Lawson. But I would also like them to know, oh, that's what Daniel's about. Oh, when we have that problem, we're going to go to the book of Acts. We're going to go to James. Well, brother pastor, this, this afternoon, I want us to go to 1 Timothy. Let's take the book of 1 Timothy, a book that no doubt a room full of pastors is well familiar with. But if we have this idea of leadership in the church, where better can we go in the Bible to look at it, to see what leaders should believe, to see what leaders, how we should live, to see what should be at the heart of leaders than this book of 1 Timothy. These are the questions that we want to consider this afternoon. Now, Phil Johnson yesterday morning actually did a wonderful introduction to this as we thought about the role of Timothy as a senior pastor in the church at Ephesus. Uh, if you didn't hear Phil's message, he went to Revelation 2 and noted how Jesus particularly criticized that congregation for losing their first love. 
But it's several decades before that, this letter was written by Paul to the man who at the time was serving as their pastor, Timothy. It's a very little book, six short chapters, written by Paul to perhaps his closest and most trusted disciple, who had become the pastor of this important church at Ephesus. And there were clearly problems in the church, and those problems presumably involved a growing sort of rogue leadership, which was powerful. While Timothy was still young at the time, and there were clearly some concerns on the part of the aging apostle Paul about Timothy's resolve. So Paul wrote, knowing that Timothy needed encouragement. And these other leaders were using the law in their teaching. They seemed to be currying the favor of various folks in the church. They seemed to have been paid rather well. The church seemed to be fraying, threatening to come apart at important fault lines. Under that situation of pressure, what should be done? Paul knew that Timothy needed an answer to that question, and so Paul wrote this letter. And we want to follow Paul's questions with interest of our own as he asks and answers three basic questions. What should a leader teach? How should a leader live? And what should be in a leader's heart? What should a leader teach? How should a leader live? And what should be in a leader's heart? Take what we find here as matters of prayer for your family, for your own church back home. And do pray about these things for yourself, that you would be a good leader in any way that God calls you to lead. First, what should a leader teach? Perhaps listen to your own heart. That God is the father of all that he's created, that we're all brothers, that it's now the business of the human race to grow up and face our evil angels honestly and choose the right to live according to the best lights of our own consciences. I shudder to think how many pulpits around this country may hear such sermons even this coming Lord's Day. That's the best many preachers have to offer. Some version of look inside, find the best, see the positive things in you, celebrate those. Well, that's so much unlike this book of 1 Timothy. That is not what Paul told Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul clearly urged Timothy to oppose false doctrine and to commend the true teaching about Christ. In fact, that was to be the basis of their fellowship in the church at Ephesus. Look in 1 Timothy. See how it begins in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away 
into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see, as soon as Paul greets Timothy, he gets right to it. He tells him that he needs to be withstanding false doctrine. He warned him clearly against false teachers, charging him to oppose their false teaching. Do not teach false doctrines, Paul urges. Paul picked this theme up again later. If you look over in chapter 6, look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. I just wonder, would that language sound at home in your pulpit? What does it mean if that language wouldn't sound at home in your pulpit? Is it possible that your pulpit sounds more like a Hallmark card than the Apostle Paul? Apparently, some who were presenting themselves as teachers there in Ephesus and even among the Christians were stirring up trouble by teaching about the law, as he says here in one seven, but, but doing so wrongly. They apparently mixed it up with myths and endless genealogies. But though they were confident talkers, Paul said they didn't know what they were talking about. And Timothy needed to call them out for the love he had for God and for the sheep. As important as the doctrine of sanctification is, and its reality in our lives, the news that we Christians have to declare is not fundamentally about our law-keeping, about our own obedience. Here in chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, he says that the good news we have to bear is not for good men. It's not, if you look there in verse 9, it's not for the just, he says. Brother preachers, we have news. But look there in verse 9, it's for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers or mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Brother Pastor, never forget that these are the people our message is intended for. These are the people we want to reach. We just sang in How Sweet and Awful. Why was I a guest? We know ourselves to be those who are by nature unjust. We're not saved by our own sanctification, but by the holiness of another for us. Now, apparently some in Ephesus did forget. They thought the church was to be just for respectable people. So then what should Timothy teach? If he was to lead the church at Ephesus well, well, Paul said clearly he were to, they were to teach the gospel. Look down a little bit further in verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. And just note the formerly there. See, even in what I just said about sanctification, those were important truths. But if you take any solace in your own sins currently because of who we just said this message is for, you're misapplying that truth. You're, you're beginning to feel okay about your sin. But brother preacher, the gospel that we have is a good news 
for sinners to call us to repent of our sins. So when Paul here is confessing his sins, note that word, formerly. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul said to Timothy, if you want to see what you should teach, Timothy, look at me. Look at my life. My calling and my conversion are examples of the truth of this message. Don't end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander, he mentions there in verse 20, who'd shipwrecked their faith. If you're going to lead the church well, if you're going to teach well, if you're going to understand and follow well, then you must understand the truth of the mercy of God to sinners and you must teach the gospel clearly. The gospel about the God who made us, who's perfectly holy, in whose image we are made, but against whom we have all sinned. And because he is such a good God, he will show his wrath on all of us for our sins. And he should do it because he is good. But in his great mercy, he sent his only son to live a life of complete trust, to live a life of righteousness and to die on the cross. And what was given us was the penalty paid for our sins and also the active obedience of Christ in his life of trust, his righteousness imputed, accounted to us. Specifically, God raised him from the dead for our justification. He ascended to heaven, presented his sacrifice to his heavenly father who accepted it. And he calls all of us, and that includes you. If you are here at a pastor's conference, unreconciled to God, you can be forgiven for your sins. You can trust in Christ today and be forgiven and restored to the relationship with God you were made in his image to bear and to have. Brothers, this is the message that we are privileged to preach with clarity and strength of the Holy Spirit every Lord's Day when we gather in our churches. If you look over in chapter 4, Paul warned Timothy that not only must he be careful about the message he preaches, but he must continue to because these problems aren't going away. If you've ever thought, you know, I'm just going to see my church through this storm and then then I'll be okay. I think those storms kind of continue until the Lord calls you home to heaven. I think it's the nature of this world to be stormy. I'm not saying there are never more peaceful periods comparatively in a church's life. But friends, this world is not our home. In the future here, Paul says, people will follow deceiving spirits. Can you imagine him writing this letter of encouragement to Timothy? And he tells them what we read here in chapter 4. It must be because Paul understood that the encouragement that's needed is not sweet nothings in Timothy's ear. It's the truth. 
so that he will be come forth. That's with strength. Come with strength forth. Strengthened. Encouraged. Courage put in his heart by the truth of the situation. Look at chapter 4 again. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, particularly of those who believe. There will be more people, he's saying like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who will make shipwreck of their faith. Yet Paul urges Timothy, you be disciplined not to do that. Don't fail in all this, Timothy. Also, though, brothers, don't fail to notice the attractiveness of false teaching. It's good for you sometimes to not just mock false teaching, or even denounce false teaching, but to help people understand why it could be attractive and to expose it for the charlatan that it is. You know, in chapter 1, the false teaching is about the law, and it would apparently exclude all these bad people we've mentioned. Over in chapter 4, we see it will involve, involve asceticism, apparent self-denial, Now, abstaining from sin and even from physical pleasures of this life would seem to be good things, right? Well, not always. If we do these things that we think earn God's pleasure, then we have accepted some kind of false teaching. As Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 10, God, the Savior of those who believe, is our only hope. Brothers, this is the message you must teach. Even if the teachers in your local schools are calling such messages exclusive, intolerant, divisive, even hateful. Have you noticed a change in the public schools just in the last five years? I I know they've been changing for decades. But I'll tell you as a pastor who's lived in the same community where many people that are Christians try to use the public schools. In the last five years, at least where we live, it's become almost impossible. I don't want to say that to discourage any of you dear public school teachers, or maybe you're married to one or have them in your church. God bless that tribe. God give them wisdom and success. But I have to tell you, we are facing an hostility today that our people know every time they send their kids to a school like one of these. We need to be clear in our teaching. 
Positively, Paul says, live as a model for the believers, both in how you conduct yourself and in the doctrine you teach. Watch your doctrine. Again, chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. When's the last time you did that in your church? To exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So just to summarize this hugely important point, what should a leader teach? Good leadership must be based upon the truth. Simple, positive thoughts will not do in a world of tragedies that are so real, like the shooting in Parklands, Florida, or Las Vegas, or the Holocaust that's been going on for decades in North Korea. Brothers, do you ever pray about that publicly in your churches? Do you decry and pray for God to remove such hateful rulers who abuse millions of people made in God's image. Things like this should be in your heart. You should teach the truth about them. You should lead out clearly in your congregation. Friends, there's a lot more to the Christian gospel than simply the little bits of celebrating the remnants of the good left in us, which so many of the TV preachers do. That is not the gospel. You know, the gospel is not God don't make no junk. Yeah, God don't make no junk. We junked ourselves. You know, we, we, we are still, all of us are made in the image of God. But as, as Ligon so well put it yesterday, the fall has made the image of God not be erased from us, but be effaced in us. It is obscured. It is distorted. Yes, we're a Cadillac. Good news. Bad news. We're a Cadillac at the bottom of the cliff. We want to be clear in teaching these truths to the people in our churches. So let's say we could right now up on the screen have a random pastor picked from this room and then a random member of your church and interview them about what you're teaching. Are you teaching these doctrines clearly? Brother Pastor, hear Paul's words here by the Holy Spirit. Timothy needed to know he needed to teach clearly. We need to know that today. We have the one true message of hope. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Let's be clear about that. Well, if that's what a leader should teach, then how should a leader live? How should a leader live? Second big question. As we're considering at the beginning of the sermon, a real leader must have the ability to help people think of more than just themselves, to to help them think of the whole. I think this is easier in other cultures. I think it was easier in past ages. I think we live in an age of unrivaled self-indulgence. Today, some would pick and choose the most fixed matters of gender and marriage, of life and death. 
We see this in gigantic ethical ways and in small ways. You know, even while I'm preaching, you face an infinity of choices on your cell phone. You can be getting things done with your staff meetings while you're listening to the message. You can be looking at the lyrics for that hymn that we sang a few minutes ago that you didn't quite get. You want to maybe use it on Sunday. You can be doing a thousand things productive or as unproductive as angry birds. I mean, you, you can be doing, you can be doing so many things. This world is tailored to us as individuals, to us as consumers. We are self-focused. We are cultivated to care for ourselves. But such self-focus or selfishness While it may be understandable in young children, it is tragically out of place in parents, in adults, especially in pastors. In this letter, Paul clearly told Timothy that authority is important and that good authority is a blessing in the world at home and most particularly in the church. He doesn't say much about authority in the world, but I do want you to notice the beginning of chapter 2. He does have a couple of sentences here inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're important for us, and they're important for us as we lead our churches. Second, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. No one is to be excluded from the blessing of authority. All of us are to benefit from the peace that the state keeps because God is concerned for all people, as Paul clearly says here. Brother Preacher, when was the last time that you requested of God, that you prayed for, that you interceded for, that you thanked God for those in authority in our country, in our nation? Brother Pastor, we pray by name for the mayor of D.C., We pray for President Trump. We we prayed for President Obama. We prayed for President Bush. We prayed for President Clinton. John could even remember praying for President Truman. (laughs) President Roosevelt. And FDR, too. And think, think of who Paul was telling them to pray for. Paul was telling them to pray for the Roman emperor. Could you think of someone more hateful to Christians? The three or four Roman emperors in the middle of the first century were no friends of the gospel. So maybe you could think, okay, maybe Paul meant for Timothy to pray something like, oh God, strike the emperor dead. I don't think so. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. You pray for whoever the emperor is. You pray for whoever the president is. For the good of all the people, including your own church and your own family. More than that, though, Paul also said something passingly about that cradle of the state, which is the home The home and there, the right use of authority. Men and women, particularly married couples, are in view here. So after giving some interesting comments on appropriate dress and activities for women, Paul goes on in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, to prohibit women from teaching and ruling men, 
because God created the man first and because the woman sinned first, this suggests that husbands are intended by God to have authority over their wives. That this exercise of authority was to be a blessing for the husband and the wife. You know, Plato thought that all the problems of the state came from family loyalties. Plato thought the family was actually the problem in society. And so he taught that the family should be replaced with what we know today is like kibbutzes in, in Israel, sort of communal families where uh, children are raised communally and you were to never disclose who someone's parents are so that there would only be the common interest of the society as a whole. That way, he hoped, the primary loyalties of a people could be moved from their families to the state and thus society's ills could be resolved. So reasoned Plato 2,500 years ago with Never in history that having been successful. The Bible, on the other hand, I think has a much cannier view of the matter. The Bible presents it much more accurately. It recognizes that good authority in the home is important. If we are to understand someone having a measure of control over us and our actions, and yet using that control for the good of the ones under their authority... What better place to learn that than the home, in the family? There, a tender, inborn love, self-interest, and long-term relationships all tend toward goodness and loving kindness and charity. Ever since the garden, Satan's basic temptation has been to tell us that God cannot tell us no and love us. And so he slanders every form of correct authority in the world. So, brother pastor, when you, in your home, use your authority for the blessing of your wife and the blessing of your children, when by God's grace you have the kind of home that the other kids in your children's class say, oh, can we go over to their house? Then you get to show a picture of what God can do with good authority. You get to train people in understanding Wow, I know I wanted to do this, but Dad told me no. And looking back, I'm so thankful for Dad. Now, you won't find that anymore in our media. We were full of that in the past in TV shows. But good authority figures are now gone. They don't exist. But hopefully they're there in our homes and in our churches. We can be pictures of them. Most of the space Paul spends writing to Timothy about good leadership, though, is, um, is at church. So this is what chapter 3 is about. Paul wrote at the beginning of chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And Paul continues to write about this. Uh, if you look in chapter 3, down through verse 15, when he concludes with, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in this chapter, Paul sets down some qualifications for overseers, for that is elders, and for deacons. And he gives some specific directions for what kind of person should serve in each capacity. He gives instructions for how we should live in God's family, and particularly for who our leaders should be and what they should be, right, be like. He writes of them personally and in their families about how they relate to the church and how they relate to the wider world. 
So what we find is that these elders, these overseers, are to be irreproachable in their observable conduct. To have an exemplary marriage and family life. To be temperate in all things. Self-controlled. Respectable. Hospitable. Able to teach. Not violent or quarrelsome or greedy. Not a recent convert. And well respected by those outside the church. Deacons too. Were to be blameless. Exemplary in their family lives. Temperate in everything. Not greedy. But respectable. Not liars. But people who honestly hold the deep truths of the faith. Now I have to say. Reading this in 2018. This looks like a very impressive list of virtues. When you look over this. And you contrast it with headlines that we read. But Paul tells Timothy here to require this of anyone who would be in leadership in a local congregation. I think one thing we can infer is that these false teachers in the Ephesian church were not living up to these standards. But if you and I would be shepherds of the church of God, we simply must. Can I just speak a word of simple wisdom here, I hope? Forgiveness is a misplaced idea here. How often do I hear pastors reflecting on their failings or some other pastor's failings and then console each other by reminding each other that, you know, there there is forgiveness in the gospel. And dear brothers, there is forgiveness in the gospel. That's the floor upon which we walk. I mean, if that's not there, all of us are wasting our time here, absolutely. But when we're talking about pastoral ministry, we are talking about standards that are not simply the standards of how we sin and we're forgiven for our sins. But there are certain things that we are with God's help to exemplify. So let me just ask you this question about these qualifications that you see here in chapter 3. Does laying out these qualifications seem different to you in tenor than the gracious forgiving way that Paul was talking in, say, in chapter 1? where he talks about who this gospel is for. Does that seem gracious? And this, on the other hand, seems demanding, even harsh. There he seemed to say the church is for sinners. Here he seems to say it's for saints. What's going on? Well, something that's important to note about these qualifications is that these are not the qualifications for someone being able to be forgiven. These are not the qualifications that someone must have in order to be a useful Christian. These are qualifications for those who would be recognized as an elder or a deacon. They are specifically for people who will be models, the patterns for the other Christians. All of whom should desire at least most of these traits. So you can't desire the trait of being, not being a recent convert, except in, that you, in fact you hope to persevere so that at some point you won't be a recent convert. But I mean, you get the idea. Basically, all of these things, except for the apt to teach and not a recent convert, are really commanded of all Christians elsewhere in the New Testament. We can find examples of them. But this combination of these traits are supposed to typify those of us who are to be elders or deacons. Most interesting, notice that the character of these church leaders is to be built not for themselves, but for others. Do you know one quality I've found uh, throughout the, the sort of Great preachers I have known, you know, or or, or good pastors, 
And the personalities are as different as the animals in the zoo. You know, I mean, Lig and John and Steve and Austin with his socks are (laughs) great brothers, but they're all different than each other. But I'll tell you something that is in common about every good pastor you know. They have built their life to serve the Lord by serving other people. They don't fundamentally use other people to serve themselves. Now, we may, in fact, end up being served by other people. So one of the fun things for me as a speaker about coming to this, this conference is I have, like, servants. You know, wow, I've got, like, Pete showing me around, and I've got Blake I brought with me, and I've got Trey trying to make sure I'm safe. You know, and it's just wonderful. You know, they, they try to make sure that the speakers are taken care of because they know, you know, we, we got a lot to do. But honestly, if you're going to be a good pastor, while, yes, you're going to be served, your whole life has got to be built around serving others. So if you would ever go into the pastorate out of selfish ambition, you've just found the wrong job. You really need to go do something else. And do it before it ends up in a faith-defeating tragedy in your church. How should a leader live? He should live a life for others. This is the authority that we are to show, uh, we hope, in the state, certainly in our homes, definitely in church. Not a life of authority exercised by someone who is self-focused, but authority which blesses those under it, which reflects the good and kind authority of God. And of course, when I mention this, I cannot help but go to 2 Samuel 23. Let's just turn there for a minute. We'll get right back to 1 Timothy. Go over to 2 Samuel 23. If you have never noticed these verses, when we're thinking of authority, these are so good. 2 Samuel 23, just the last few verses, the first few verses. 2 Samuel 23. Now, these are the last words of David, so you know these are important. Given it's David, given it's his last words, these are extremely important. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. You see the parallelism. It's reinforcing how important this person is. And then the words begin. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. So these are not only not just David's words, that the spirit of the Lord speaking by David. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Okay, so what is he going to say? Here it is. The God of Israel has spoken. Okay. The rock of Israel has said to me. Yes. Okay. So we've now got four lines of parallelism to show that what's coming is, is as it were, in all caps. This is David's last words. David, of all people in the Old Testament, this is King David's last words. Here they are. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Oh, is that not a beautiful image? Friend, every time you've seen a good mom or a good dad, every time your kid tells you about the good teacher at school, doesn't everybody want to be on the team of the good coach? Doesn't everybody want to go work for the good boss? We're getting in the news right now a lot of terrible, tragic, and true stories about the abuse of authority. And we should regret those with every fiber of our being. But Satan is hissing right along with that. Never trust authority. Authority is by nature always bad. 
Because, of course, the supreme authority is God. So Satan wants authority distrusted. Friends, this is one of the reasons abuses of authority. Uh, sexual abuse. Uh, racism. Are such terrible sins. Because they take people in positions of power and authority, which is much like God, and they do bad things to others under that authority. So that's a particular blasphemy against God. And what David is saying here is when authority is used well, it blesses those under it. If, if you don't have a good picture of that in your mind, just stay here for Sunday and come to Grace Community Church. See, see what authority used fruitfully for five decades in a row bears by God's grace. Look in your own home. Maybe your parents that you grew up under. Maybe a church that you grew up in. Look for examples in your own life, not of the painful abuses. They may be there. But look for examples of good use of authority and see how that's blessing you even today. That's what Paul's writing to Timothy about. He's saying there needs to be authority like that. One more aspect of good leadership. Number three, what is at the heart of good leadership? And this heart is something which would particularly stand out these days I think, so marked by materialism. Here in this letter, Paul clearly told Timothy that he was to live not for his own gain, but for God's pleasure. And he was to urge others to do the same. The good and right way to live is the way that pleases God. Pleasing God is the great motive. If you've never read John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God, it's a glorious book. I think it's the best book John's written. The Pleasures of God by John Piper. Get it, read it, feast on it for your soul. You look over here in 1 Timothy in chapter 5, where Paul deals with some very particular problems about our duties toward each other in the church. In the first couple of verses in chapter 5, Paul talks to Timothy about how he personally should exhort various different kinds of folks, respecting each of them. Verse 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. The bulk of this chapter in verses 3 to 16 is taken up with some very practical questions about how to regulate the church's care of women who had become widows because it was very much understood to be the role of the family to care for those in the family who were widowed and who no longer had husbands to provide for them. Paul was concerned that people not take advantage of the church, though, but that the relatives should care for their family and that they should do so. He says here in verse 4, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So living for your own pleasure, he says, should be replaced by living for God's pleasure. Again, if if you've never thought much about this idea of being motivated by the pleasure of God, get a copy of Piper's Pleasures of God. Make it your book to read this year. But you realize, I, I just want to stress, I love John, but I had noted this theme even before John wrote a book. It's all over the Bible. It didn't begin with John Piper. It didn't begin with Jonathan Edwards. This is just an old theme in the Bible. It's there in Ezekiel. It's here throughout 1 Timothy. Our whole salvation happened because it pleased God. Paul wrote to the Romans that those controlled by the flesh couldn't please God. As the writer of the Hebrews said, that without faith it is impossible to please God. This idea of pleasing God is a biblical idea. Paul regularly instructed Christians to please God. So to the children in the church at Colossae, he exhorted them in Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Generally, he exhorted Christians to work at this. To the Ephesian Christians, 
He said in Ephesians 5.10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So here, back in 1 Timothy, here in 1 Timothy 5, verse 4, the relatives of these widowed ladies should be moved to initiate love and concern, to take responsibility because it pleases the Lord. And if you go on and you read through chapter 5, you see that God is pleased. Paul continued in the rest of the chapter 5 about the specifics of widows that were and were not to be cared for by the church, with the basic test seeming to be, is there anyone else financially to care for them? Paul reminded Timothy that he was to obey Paul's instructions, that he would answer before God concerning the matters they had discussed, including paying elders, disciplining them, and setting them apart. All of these actions are seen to be done out of a desire to bring God pleasure. Brother, how much is that at your heart? Are you pastoring to keep your job, to keep the paycheck coming, to see the numbers growing, to see somebody get saved? None of those things are wrong. Are you pastoring ultimately to please God, to bring him pleasure? Because you love him with your whole life. There are, of course, other reasons for doing the things that we do as pastors. One of the chief ones that shows its head is the desire for financial gain. Leadership in the church, indeed, in any kind of service in the church, Paul says, is not for financial gain. Paul specifically warns about this over in chapter 6. You look at verse 5. He refers to those imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In the middle of this last chapter, chapter 6, Paul warned Timothy about the dangers of false teaching. He again indicted their teaching there in chapter 6 in verse 3. And their motives there in verse 5. They were doing all of it because they loved money, Paul said. You realize the amount of money does not have to be large for someone to love it? If you associate having a love of money with having a lot of money, you've not examined your own heart well. You can love money when you don't have much of it. Love of money is different. It's opposed to love for God. Even small amounts of money can work on human hearts. One of the most chilling memories in my mind is walking with a man that I had served with, whom I loved, and hearing him as he aged as a minister, saying to me in one long walk we had, Mark, you know, as I get older in the ministry... I come to see more clearly the importance of money. Friends, when he said that, I can't tell you how it broke my heart. Because as much esteem as I had for that man, I knew that showed that his heart was in a perilous state. That in fact, he could even already be dead spiritually. Sadly, it turned out to be that way. That kind of appreciation for money seems to have been the case of the false teachers that Paul is talking about here to Timothy. They wanted more students in order to have more money. But their wanting to get rich led them astray. Look there in chapter 6 at verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What a contrast Paul draws here and what's at the heart of some people's motives for leadership in the church, indeed for being in the church at all, some people desiring to please God. 
Others desire money. He says here in verse 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. And in verse 10, love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Take those two phrases as two different directions. As this conference ends tonight, you go back to your hotel room or your home or your airplane. Just consider those two directions. Which one would better sum up your life? Godliness with contentment or love of money? The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. These are serious words for us. Paul then finishes up this letter with some personal directions to Timothy, some final instructions for the wealthy, who were clearly a source of problems in the Ephesian church. And he charged Timothy in verse 20 one more time to persevere in the truth. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy. I love the affection in the word O. O Timothy. It's not just Timothy, not abrupt, clipped, professional. It's heartfelt. It's sopped in emotion. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Brother Pastor, what is at the heart of good leadership? The heart of good leadership is a a desire not for money for yourself, but for the pleasure of God. You want to see Him pleased, to please Him, and to display His pleasure. May God give our churches leaders like this, leaders committed to the gospel, committed to the good of the church, committed to living in such a way as to please God. But we have to say pastors aren't always this way, are we? Gilbert Tennant was the firstborn in a home of a Presbyterian minister in County Armagh, Ireland in 1703. The same year Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley were born. At the age of 15, Gilbert Tennant's family immigrated to Philadelphia. There, Tennant grew up along with his two brothers going to Yale for his education. After moving around with his family a bit when he was 23, he was licensed to preach. At 24, the Philadelphia Presbytery ordained him. He was soon settled at New Brunswick, New Jersey. By 1734, revivals had begun to occur in New Brunswick, and Tennant became an ardent evangelist, traveling to preach throughout New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, and throughout New England. Tennant encouraged the the Philadelphia Presbytery to be more diligent in examining the evidences of grace in the lives of candidates for the ministry. And controversies ensued. When George Whitfield came to America in 1740, the young Gilbert Tennant, now approaching middle age at 37, accompanied him on his journeys. Whitfield called Tennant's sermons searching, and he called Tennant a son of thunder. A few years earlier, his father had begun a college to train ministers, but the Philadelphia Synod opposed ordaining its graduates. That was the context when, on March 8th, that'd be yesterday, 278 years ago, 1740, on March 8th, 1740, in Nottingham, Pennsylvania, just above the Maryland border between Baltimore and Philadelphia, that 37-year-old Presbyterian minister, Gilbert Tennant, preached a sermon that became famous. It was called On the Danger of an Unconverted Clergy. Later published and widely circulated, this sermon called on Christians to avoid preachers who had only the form of religion but not the substance. He suggested that many in his day were Pharisee teachers. That is, they were hypocrites. 
we don't have to sit 250 years later and judge tenants' wisdom. PhD dissertations on the topic abound. We don't have to judge his wisdom to appreciate the concern. As Spurgeon said, God never saved any man for being a preacher. Paul didn't want Timothy to misunderstand the importance of his teaching, of his life, of his heart, of his motives. Dear brother, we must give the same attention to these matters. Oh, brothers, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you give us your word and that by it you sometimes pick us up by the scruff of our necks and shake us. And other times, Lord, you hug us to yourself and assure us of your carrying us home. You know what each one here in this room needs. Holy Spirit, take the word that you have inspired. Apply it to our hearts. Bring pleasure to yourself through working holiness, trust, love, and obedience in us, even in our ministries and through our ministries in the lives of our people. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.